This is Comms Day Live. I'm Graham Lynch and welcome to the show. We've got a pretty action-packed episode this week. We'll be hearing from Senator Jim Molan about physical network security, we'll be hearing from Tilly Geography about what's happening in trans-Pacific capacity, and also from Nokia's International President of Network Infrastructure, Federico Guillian, um, about what's going on in the optical networking world. First up, Telstra has a new CEO as of this week, Vicky Brady. She replaces Andy Penn, who, of course, was with Telstra for uh, about a decade or so. And um, probably not by coincidence, Telstra held its big enterprise conference, Vantage, um, at the point of handover from Andy Penn to Vicky Brady. So, in effect, Vantage played host to Vicky's first speech as the CEO. And she used it to uh, paint a bit of a picture as to what she sees will be the key technology trends for Australian enterprises over the next few years. Let's hear from what she had to say. Now in the lead up to stepping into this role as Chief Executive Officer, you can imagine I've been thinking a lot about what things are going to shape Telstra over the coming years. I've also just importantly, as importantly been thinking about what it means for our customers and having the chance to meet with our customers, talk to them, hear their feedback and read their feedback. Because to me, the big thing we're focused on is how can we help you with those opportunities and challenges ahead? For me, right at the moment, I would say the amount of change we're seeing around us is the most I've ever experienced in my working career. The rapid change from climate change, from geopolitics, from the disruption to supply chains, to the economic pressures, and also to the ongoing effects of COVID. It's going to throw at us, and is already throwing at us, different challenges and different opportunities. And as I said, our focus is how can we help you as together we face into those challenges and opportunities. I believe to really prosper over the next few years, it's going to be so important that we think differently and boldly as individuals, as businesses and as a country. And I really think collaboration and partnership at a deeper and more embedded level is going to be critical for all of us. Now, there is one thing I am very sure of in this uncertain world at the moment, and that is that connectivity and technology are going to play a key role for all of us in our businesses as we respond to the challenges ahead. And when I think about that connectivity and technology, on the connectivity side, you know us well as a leader in connectivity, in providing safe, sovereign and secure networks for you, combined with an incredible depth in cyber security capabilities. On the technology side, there is so much innovation happening from AI, edge and cloud computing and so our focus is, particularly through Telstra Purple, how we can help provide new solutions to some of those old challenges, new challenges and new opportunities ahead of us all. I was also recently, I was fortunate enough to go to the US and I met with a number of the world's leading technology companies, companies we partner deeply with. Companies like Google, Microsoft, Salesforce, and Meta. And I'm super happy, we've got a lot of them here with us 
advantage this, these next few days as well. One of the things for me, the standout takeaway from this trip, and I'm sure many of you have done these trips before, as have I, normally when you go on these trips, it's all talk about consumer tech and what's the next big gadget or trend that's going to change the world. What was very different on this trip was all of the talk had moved from consumer tech to business tech. And so the conversations were around how is technology going to deeply change our businesses across industries? And that's what really struck me. Doesn't matter the industry. There is no doubt the opportunity ahead from digitising our businesses is enormous. And so I wanted to touch on three technology trends that I think are going to be important to all of us over the coming decade and the coming few years. I want to start with digital twins. So it gets talked about a lot. That ability that enables us to construct virtual models of anything in the physical world. Now, when I say anything in the physical world, we probably all think about things that we could manage to do. You know, it might be buildings or it might be something relatively small, a piece of infrastructure. Well, we had the great pleasure to meet with NVIDIA. Now, they're a company we also partner with. And what they showed us was a very bold ambition where they are building a digital twin of the entire planet. So a digital twin of the entire planet to help model and make decisions around climate change that can literally change the world. So I came away from that and thought, well, if they're thinking that boldly, wow, thinking about a piece of infrastructure seems entirely achievable. And so at Telstra, there are a few things we're already working on in the digital twin space. Just to highlight a few, we're using digital twins for our property assets today to help us really plan and optimise them. Our towers business, Amplitel, that own and operate our mobile towers, they've built digital twins already for around 2,000 of our towers. Now that might not sound important, but let me tell you, when you're a customer of our towers business and you're deciding where you might want to co-locate equipment. That used to involve visits to sites, and it's a lot of cost and time. Now our customers can access those digital twins and make those decisions in a virtual environment. It's a real game changer for the way they engage with us. Our Telstra Health business is also working to build digital twins for hospitals. You think about the benefit of that, being able to plan and forecast for hospitals in that virtual world. So amazing stuff to come from digital twins. The second trend I wanted to talk about, which is closely related, is IoT. Now you might feel that we've been talking about the benefits of IoT for quite some time, and you'd be right. But the great thing is we are seeing those benefits now really translate. Today, as Telstra, we already have almost six million things or devices connected to our network. And on a weekly basis, we're adding on average around 20,000 devices a week. It's quite extraordinary. And when you look at the strategic partnership we recently announced with Microsoft, you see in there a way that we're bringing together our Telstra data hub with a suite of products from Microsoft 
to really tackle the challenges of sustainability. It's an incredibly exciting area. I also look at the work we're doing with Queensland Government at the moment, where we are collecting and we're storing and we're analysing and sharing data on rivers. Again, enabling better decisions about how to manage those river systems. We're also seeing our customers when it comes to IoT and how they leverage all of that amazing data that it produces. They're adopting that to look at smart heating and cooling systems that reduce energy emissions. I could go on and on. There are so many examples of this. In fact, Deloitte published a recent report and in that they spoke about that based on what we're doing to enable our customers today, they estimate that our customers avoided 2.7 million tonnes of carbon dioxide emissions in 2021. That's the equivalent of taking about 820,000 cars off the road in that year. So it's exciting. I, I talked a little bit about what we're doing on Digital Twins inside Telstra. We're also doing pretty incredible stuff when it comes to data and AI. So if I look at our customer experience, using that to improve and tailor our customer experience. On our networks, using all of that information to be more adaptive and provide more resilient networks, and often now with no human intervention. So there is incredible opportunity ahead of us in IoT. Now the third trend I want to talk about probably won't surprise you given I'm about to step into the role as CEO of Telstra and that is the continued innovation in connectivity. If you want to be a digitally led organisation, you absolutely need robust and world-leading technology providing the connectivity layer that supports it all. And so at Telstra, no surprise, our focus remains on providing world-leading mobile networks here in Australia to enable your businesses from 4G to 5G, which is well underway now, more than 80% coverage in the country and more than double our nearest competitors' population coverage. And then we have 6G on the horizon, so we will continue to lead, to invest and innovate in our mobile technology to support you. And now I know in Australia, we've got a very big landmass and mobile is not going to reach to all of the most remote areas of the country. And we're incredibly excited by the innovation going on in the satellite space today. We think it's a game changer. We think it's a game changer, particularly for those businesses that are going to need that connectivity across very large and remote land masses. And I think about here in Australia, a great example with our farmers, being able to have fence-to-fence -fence connectivity right across their properties to enable them, again, to really grab hold of those benefits of digitising their businesses. That's Vicky Brady, the CEO of Telstra as of this week. Um, now, she was speaking at the beginning of a, a two-day event that Telstra was holding uh, for its enterprise customers called Vantage. And what, what was um, a dominant theme, as you might expect, was cybersecurity. Now, that, that takes us to our next topic of this podcast, which isn't so much cybersecurity, but the physical security of telecom infrastructure. 
Now, Liberal Senator Jim Molland, um, who's best known for heading allied operations in Iraq back in 2004, has a new book out called Danger on Our Doorstep. Now, his thesis is that it's all very well to be worried about cybersecurity and cyber warfare, you know, making it hard for hackers to infiltrate your network and so on. But the, the end game, the ultimate threat is the actual physical destruction of telecommunication networks at a time of war, and specifically satellites and submarine cables. Um, so we had a chat with him about these concerns and about his book, and we asked him if potential adversaries actually had the capability to take out satellites and, and subcables. Absolutely, and, and this comes from any number of meetings that I've had with various, uh, various manufacturers of satellites uh, as recently as last week. Uh, all in Australia, uh, the ability, the ability to, uh, you know, that there are, there are at the moment, uh, Chinese satellites which are moving closely to, uh, the, the, the close up to, to our major satellites, particularly in a, in a, in a what do we call our, our, our uh, long Earth orbit? We've got Meo and Geo. So they, they we, we, our most important and hardest to replace satellites, possibly are our Geo, and quite regularly Chinese satellites and Russian satellites come briefly up to sit beside and, and, and gather intelligence on our satellites. Uh, and often we, we have to then move so we can use those satellites. Oh. So the capability, they, they, they've also used uh, their own, they, they've also demonstrated an ability to move those, the Russian and Chinese satellites around to put them next to our satellites, which they could then explode. They have exploded them in certain Earth orbits, oh. uh, which again have meant that with the great block of uh, of uh, uh, of shrapnel uh, from that, that exploded uh, satellite means that that particular Earth orbit uh, can't be used for some you know, for an indeterminate period of time. Hmm. So uh, yes, it is it is possible. Yeah. Uh, the the low Earth orbit uh, uh, are very very vulnerable to attack. Uh, and the undersea cables are exactly the same. Ninety percent of our undersea of our information goes by undersea cable, hmm. uh, and it's uh, it's uh, uh, it's all in cipher, of course. Uh, but uh, uh, it's still you know if you if you smash that undersea cable, uh, and uh, there are there are several submarines on both sides which are designed exactly for this hmm. uh, for, for uh, uh, destroying the connectivity of the undersea cable so uh, there you go a, a, a big warning there from senator jim molland um and there's more in his new book danger on our doorstep now on that submarine cable theme um it seems we're becoming more and more dependent on them if anything um, and that trend is set to continue. Uh, telegeography research analyst Marvin Tan addressed a Siena webinar this week where he outlined this inexorable rise in capacity across the Pacific. Now, in the audio grab we've got here, he, he alludes to a slide. Um, obviously, you can't see the slide, but he makes it very clear what he's describing. So hopefully there's no confusion. What's more important here is to realise the absolute increase year on year so much so that bandwidth it's across the Pacific is almost doubling every two years. 
So the next question to ask would be, who consumes all this bandwidth, right? So the key element of this diagram here is that users of bandwidth are not evenly distributed in the different routes. So take, for example, content providers, which is represented in navy blue, consume more than 75% of bandwidth via the Pacific, which is largely similar to that of the Atlantic, in that both routes are dominated by content providers. On the flip side, internet backbone providers, represented in turquoise, still consume larger volume of bandwidth in certain routes. But just to be clear here, right, the demand for the different categories of users are still growing rapidly, just that the demand for content providers are growing at a faster pace. Hence, their percentage share of bandwidth is increasing over time. So moving on to the next slide, the, the rising number of cloud region deployments is one of the factors for increasing bandwidth across the Pacific. So this diagram illustrates the cloud region deployments for content providers such as AWS, Alibaba, Azure, Google Cloud, and so on. So if you were to start at 2015, here is the view of the cloud region deployments by these content providers. Now, now advancing to 2020, you can see that over time, there is expanding cloud region deployments across Asia, Oceania, and North America. This trend continued in 2022. And finally, this map is showing all of the cloud latest cloud region deployments as of today. And from this, you can tell that there is more than one focal point for cloud regions as they spread across APEC and Oceania. And in general, the subsea network tends to follow the cloud region build trends as capacity for content providers are usually from data center to data center. Hence, these cloud region deployments will continue to boost bandwidth demand across the Pacific. As expected, the increase in bandwidth demand has led to a surge in new cable investments in the years to come. We can see that there are significantly more cables entering service in the next three years, so much so that construction value for cables entering service from 2022 to 2024 is more than seven times as compared to 2019 to 2021. We witnessed similar high levels of investments across Asia and Oceania as well, as there is a need to distribute this capacity across the different regions. Do note that beyond 2024, there are actually more cables entering service, which will further inflate these values here. So, Earlier in my presentation, we have established that content providers consume more bandwidth on certain routes. So looking ahead, let us observe where content providers are likely to invest in. So I would like you to focus mainly on the red bar, which illustrates year 2022 to 2024. You can see that there is an increase in content providers' share for new cable investments to almost all regions. So for Trans-Pacific per se, over half the cable investments are funded by content providers, and we believe that this will likely increase going forward. Moving on to pricing trends, this chart is a comparison of the year-on-year -year 100 GB wavelength price decline against the two-year cable price decline from 2018 to 2020. So the key element here is that the pace of price erosion has slowed over the years. And you can tell this as the two-year Kager price decline, 
which is represented in turquoise, it's larger in magnitude as compared to the year-on-year -year price decline as represented in navy blue. The, the slowing of price erosion is mainly due to supply chain constraints, which led to delays in cable upgrades, as well as geopolitical factors leading to delays in the deployment of new cables. And so far in 2020, we continue to see evidence of slowing price erosion across the Pacific. So that's Marvin Tan, analyst from Chile Geography. Apologies again for the fact he's alluding to some slides that obviously you can't see on an audio podcast. But um, I guess you could just go through the thought of excursion of imagining a lion that is climbing very high very quickly and you're halfway there. Okay, moving on. Um, while we're talking about a uh, fixed infrastructure, um, the president of network infrastructure for Nokia, Federico Gualen, was in Sydney this week for an analyst summit. Now, Nokia, of course, is one of the biggest fixed infrastructure suppliers in the world and, and a main supplier to NBN, who's the main user of fixed network technology in Australia. It's a key market for them here. Uh, Federico caught up with our chief editor, Simon Ducks, for an extensive interview. Um, and we're going to listen to a grab from um, Simon asking him whether or not the great global supply chain crisis is affecting companies such as Nokia. Last two years, uh, it's uh, been a little bit uh, hectic. Uh, but uh, well, the good news is that uh, we saw it coming probably before others, and we created a little bit of inventory of some critical components. That's one. The second is that very early, we went to all our customers, all our customers, and told them, look guys, we are in trouble. Either you start telling me what are you going to want in the next 18 months, or maybe I, I cannot uh, deliver. So customers were, I have to say, very, very nice, and very, they collaborated with us. In some cases, they gave us the forecast. In some cases, they gave us even the orders. And, uh, and we were able, I mean, if you have big volumes and you know what's coming, even if there are changes, man, I mean, when you give, when you ask for the forecast to our customers, of course, for the next three months, you want this precision. You want to know 100% what they're going to want, because otherwise you cannot build it. But one year and a half from now, you allow some flexibility that be pushing up or down or whatever, yeah, even changes. If you mix up all the customers in the world, what happens is that, uh, I mean, statistically, they are going to compensate one each other. Some people will want a little bit more, some people are a little bit less, and, and we survive. The other important thing is work with customers, but also with suppliers. Understand what is it the priorities that you want really want because if you ask for everything you're not going to get nothing if you prioritize with your suppliers then you're going to get a better service and yes there is cost inflation they are in a position of strength sometimes they are a little bit at the end the, the, the name of the game is to deal with the supply chain shortages better than competition and that's what we're doing and that's why we're taking self from competition because we're dealing with it better, because we have better relations with our suppliers and because we are getting the help from our customers, which probably they are also helping our competitors, but for some reason we are serving better. We don't have, I mean, listen, two years ago when, when this thing started, I, I thought, oh my God, 
I'm going to spend half of my time in customer calls with complaints and I mean yes from time to time I will have some little crisis but uh, not to the level that I would have expected by far and are you, are you seeing some green shoots of recovery there or is it still pretty depends, tough depends to who you listen yeah <laughs> I want to be I want to be prudent here. Uh, yes, I see some light at the end of the tunnel, tunnel but uh, but I don't want to to say that we are out of the woods yet because maybe it's a train coming my way. <laughs> well, there you go. On that note, <laughs> we don't we wouldn't want him to have any suffering now, would we? That's Nokia um, talking about what's going on with supply chains internationally, and that's it for Comms Day Live this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.